Hello and welcome to the Mystic Cast, where you join Jack Stafford and Deborah Littleboy, members of the Ethereum Society, the cosmic religion for the Aquarian Age. So we break down the barriers between religion, science, metaphysics, all of which are really only aspects of the self-same quest for truth. Please note this is an independent program, not produced or fact-checked by the Ethereum Society. Today, our guest is Rizwan Verk. Hello, Rizwan. Hello. Nice to be with you today. Nice to be with be with you. Today we're talking about when truth is stranger than science fiction. And this ties in well with your work. Could you kick us off by introducing yourself and telling us more about your work? Sure. So, you know, my background is uh, I was a computer scientist, went to MIT many years ago. Uh, then I uh, was an entrepreneur and investor in Silicon Valley, particularly in the video game industry. Um, and I, I ran a startup accelerator at MIT for a while. And then I, I wrote a book called The Simulation Hypothesis which uh, is the idea that we actually might live inside a video game um, and which, you know, is known to most people through the popular media, such as The Matrix, for example, or various shows like Upload and, and, and many others that are out there today. Um, uh, and so currently I'm actually a professor uh, at Arizona State University um, and also uh, working on a PhD there as well. So a smart man. This will make us uh, don't make us look too bad. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You said that, you know the the podcast cuts across you know these different areas, uh, and I just uh, designed a class at at ASU, which is the first college level class on this idea, and it's called Simulation Theory, Sci-Fi, Religion, Technology, and Philosophy. So it's about as interdisciplinary as you can get, and I found science fiction is a great way to touch you know, all of these topics and, and ways of thinking about the world. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It uses imagination, which the masters say is man's only creative faculty and something that we all have to use. So, um, most of our audience is uh, members and sympathizers of the Ethereum society. So we try and tackle things from that area and it's, uh, it's packed full of the truth is, is much more advanced than science fiction because really in, in essence, science fiction I've always found is only 20 years ahead of because you can't imagine people, you have to play to the audience's imagination. Science fiction from the past looks old-fashioned. Uh, when you when you heard about the, <laughs> yeah when you heard about the Ethereum Society, what uh, what were your first impressions? Well, just just to follow up on your earlier point about science fiction in twenty years, you know, there's actually a rule within sci-fi, which is you you usually want it to take place far enough into the future that people today might think it's plausible, but not so far that they can't imagine it. And so they often end up going about 30 years into the future. So for example, 2001, A Space Odyssey came out in 1969, right? And Blade Runner, you know, which came out in 1982, I think, or 84, so in the early 80s, you know, was set around 2019 or so. So it was set about 30 years. So every 30 years we catch up with <laughs> the science fiction of the past. Uh, so uh, Ted, to your second question, you know, I, I, I will admit I was not very familiar uh, you know, with the Ethereum Society, um, you know, but I, I, uh, I had heard some of these ideas uh, in other contexts, uh, you know, what, because I spent a lot of time with people who have investigated UFOs uh, and, you know, potential extraterrestrial visitations. I've also spent time with folks who look at alternate histories. Uh, and, you know, my own work is, is, is about the fact that there might actually be multiple alternate histories. There may be more than one as well. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to just explore uh, with you guys some of these topics. Yeah. 
your ideas are also tying the, like the multiverse, the many frequencies of vibration that uh, coexisting together in the same place? Uh, yeah, I mean, depending on how you define the multiverse. So my second book about simulation was called the Simulated Multiverse. And so it was about this idea of the quantum multiverse and how, uh, you know, within quantum mechanics, one of the interpretations is that uh, every time a decision is made, the universe actually breaks out into into two two separate versions of itself. I've heard about the many worlds yeah. theory, which is uh, yeah. bullshit to me. But anyway, <laughs> some people don't like it. But what happens is with quantum mechanics, you get half of the half of the physicists not liking the one theory, which is kind of the predominant theory, which is the Copenhagen interpretation and the collapse of the probability wave. And then you have other half of the scientists who, who don't like that theory, but who like the multiverse theory or the many worlds interpretation. And, well, and the Steve, problem is they both have problems, I think. You know? <laughs> I had Steve Carroll on my other podcast and he tried to convince me. Wow. But it didn't sound very... Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, truth is strange. For example, and probably when you get to the higher level, we talk about, we, they talk in the, in the transmissions about... Um, the, the how many cloaks is it, Deborah, of the the planet Earth? Is it nine? Forty nine cloaks, and then the sun has many more. So, and then they oh. they vary. Then, then you go on to learn the science of variable dimensions, and then so there's there's things that are way above our our level of comprehension. But I can comprehend the idea that um, you know that with the scientists, this mainstream science, with stuck stuck in this this paper the one level of everything so they the universe right. is completely we've not discovered no inhabitable planets we can't we've looked out through our telescopes and we can't see any other any other life forms anywhere but all the other planets are inhabited just to different frequencies and we're such because of the electromagnetic spectrum we're at such a base we're such a, at our at our level of existence okay that you don't see anything but if you just change the vibration it's packed Right. Well, well, that, that 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 makes some sense. And you know, it's interesting that part of my work is comparative religions, even though I'm a technologist. Uh, and you know, I find you know this idea, particularly within the Islamic tradition, like in the Quran, they talk about the seven earths, right, uh, and the seven heavens and seven hells as sort of parallel versions uh, or sort of existing, but existing in in different. Like you can't get there physically. You have to like shift something in order to get there, uh, and you know they also talk about the, the jinn as being a, another uh, set of entities that live on this physical planet with us, but they're kind of off at a different vibration, if you will. I mean, obviously they didn't use that word. I mean, all the spiritual texts have to use metaphors, right? Uh, and 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 that's kind of one of my general points is that you know the things that we hear in the spiritual text, they're always channeled in such a way just like you know plato's you know cave the allegory of the cave the philosopher left the cave and he came back and he tried to explain to people what he saw i mean you had to you had to put it in terms that they can actually understand and so pretty much any spiritual text we get is going to have metaphors and mm. you know if if some of those were done today we might use different metaphors you know rather than mm. saying we put on the cloak we put on a the clothes of a body a soul puts on the clothes of a body today we might say you're a player who plays a video game and you put on a virtual reality helmet and that right. when you put on that helmet you forget what was happening before and you lose track of everything else that's going on and you believe this is reality 
And that's still just a metaphor. I mean, that doesn't mean there's physically a virtual reality headset. And that's how I got involved in all this was I, I was actually playing, a, I had sold my last startup and I was playing a virtual reality ping pong game and I put on the VR helmet. And for a moment, I forgot that I was actually in the VR because the physics engine was so good. My body was full just for a moment. I mean, it was a big headset, there were wires. There was no way you could really forget. But for a moment, so much so that I tried to put the paddle on the table and I tried to lean against the table. And, you know, of course there was no table. It was all virtual. And the controller fell to the floor and I almost fell over. And then I started to think about, you know, where our technology is going. And then I started to look back at what the quantum mechanics people were saying. And there's something fundamentally wrong with the universe with what they're saying. And they couldn't quite figure it out. And then I looked at what the religions were saying. And I said, well, there's a metaphor that kind of works with all of these that, that might help us to understand. Yeah. yeah, that really works, doesn't it? Because also the the other realms of existence in religion, the heaven and the hells are, the, are right here, just a different frequency of vibration. Between incarnatory cycles, we go to another realm of existence. So it explains, you know, ghosts and, you know, the, the hells in the same way that you believe in UFOs. Is it, it, the same way of thinking explains explains both viewpoints yeah and you know the interesting thing with ufos is uh, you know i spent some time with uh, jacques Vallée, who has uh you know been researching the subject since the 60s it was part of project blue book and you know he says there are many sightings where one person sees the ufo and the person standing next to them doesn't see a ufo uh and there's another instance he said he was investigating uh, this particular sighting, and they said the UFO came down at a 45-degree angle, and it made some marks on the ground. So there was some physical, you know, let's say residue uh, of, of the UFO. So he went and he looked, and, and, he, and he, it was in a pack clearing in the Redwoods up in northern in California or, or southern Oregon. And he said, well, if it had come down at a 45-degree angle, it would have had to cut through the trees. I mean, there's like tall redwood trees. And they said, yeah, but we don't want to tell anybody that because we'll sound like we're crazy. Right. And so there's this element of, you know, perhaps these are things that are here, but they move in and out of our physical reality. And in video games, we do that all the time. And so if you ever play a video game, you will see that you can render like a dragon or an object. And as you're rendering it, you can move through other things. You can also make it so that, you know, your player may be more advanced. Say you're at level 30, or my player is only at level one. We'll be standing in what seems like the same physical field, but you'll see the dragon, and I won't. Why? Okay. Because you know, it, because it gets rendered for us as necessary and based upon our perceptual level. Just like I'm not really talking to you right now, am I? I am talking to my computer, and the bits are being sent over, and you are rendering that on your computer. Who knows if you're seeing? Who knows if this painting of you know this kind of alien planet behind me is is actually there That's or a tree? Riz, that's I see a tree. <laughs> you see a tree uh, underneath the tree, yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and so, if reality gets rendered, then you know, again, that's also just a metaphor, but it's a way for us to understand um, that reality may be more complicated uh, than than with the way that we think it is. And so, I like to use the multiplayer role-playing, massively multiplayer role-playing game, just as the metaphor to help people open their minds that there might be something more going on than just the physical, you know, material level of reality. It reminds me of um, when my kids were little, so we're talking early 90s, and they were heavily into Pokemon. And I used to have to, I, they called me Pokemon. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, <laughs> but it was like, 
no, mum, you can't do that because my couple have got you because he's got the magical powers of of blah, 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 and you can't cut through that because, and how many points, you know, and it was all, and I was thinking, gracious me, this is, this is like really clever stuff, whoever thought of this game, because it was making the kids think, beyond, you know, like different levels for different um Tell your abilities. story about the, the, the chipmunks, Deborah. No. Go on. Do you want to make, make me look stupid? No, no, it's a, it's a good story. All right, okay, you forced my arm. When I was a kid, I was a very lonely kid, really, like, desperately lonely, and we're talking about a two- or three-year-old child, and so lonely I felt sick all the time that I was so lonely. I had people around me. But I was really, really lonely, desperately lonely. My mum read me a bedtime story every night, which is most parents do. And one, this one story was a Walt Disney story. It was Donald Duck and his two nephews, Chip and Dale, which were chipmunks. And my mum was reading this story and I could see the pictures and I was visualising these children. And they had a, such a good time, Riz, I cannot tell you. They were the best. You know, and they were um, everybody around was like really measurable and they decided they were going to paint the houses with big, with big squirrels. And, with, and I was really into this story and I thought, that's who I need. If I had Chip and Dale, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be um, so lonely. And when I woke up the next morning, they were at the bottom of my bed. I'm telling you, they were at the bottom of my bed. And they were my invisible friends, according to my mum. They weren't invisible to me. No, 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 no. <laughs> they were real. And so they went everywhere with me, even to the extent that we went to the, we going to the shops one day, um, stood at the bus stop, bus comes along, we get, we get on the bus. I look behind. We've left Chip and Dale at the bus stop. Scream. Mum, I'm a very proud woman. Chip and Dale, we've left them behind, Mum. No, 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 they're here, dear. They're here, dear. No, they're not. They're at the bus stop. Scream. At the stop the bus. Get off the bus. My mum's like really angry. Bus only comes like every 45 minutes. We're on us at to go back. Chip and Dale up, wait for the next bus. My mum's super angry with me. Right, cut now. Go to school. And Chip and Dale were no longer sort of important because I had school friends. 30 years of age, I'm laying on a Reiki bed with a friend, a Reiki practitioner, also a psychic, doing what, you know, doing all the do. And she said to me, Deb, I shouldn't say this, but I've got these two characters, these two characters racing round the bottom of this bed, like having such a good time. And as she said that, I connected with them and I knew exactly who they were. I said, oh, that's Chip and Dale. So she, I told the story. She said, well, they're, they are thought forms and you're wasting so much energy letting that program run on. You best take them back in. So she told me how to take these two energy forms back into my solar plexus. Um, but I had that I had that running, that running for for 
24, 25 years in the background. So that proves how um, desperation, if you want, and imagination can actually create. And in the teachings, we know about thought forms and shades and all those things. But from a personal point, I, I know, hey, I had two, two little friends that I created for myself, and they were chipmunks. There we are. So that's the end of my career as a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, no, that's a great story, right? So it's, it's um, so what you're creating, what I see is what you're creating for people is what I created for myself, but out of desperation. And now you're making it easier for everybody to become and create within this um, this wonderful world that that um, is is a computer program. I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, as long as you think, don't you know... be killing people. Don't be going killing people in the in your in your program. But no, that's not karma. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's you know one of the the points that I try to make people is is don't assume that anyone else is an NPC. So you know NPC stands for non-player character. Uh, who are the players you know inside video game or the characters inside a video game that are not your character? So your character is usually called an avatar, right? A term which is been borrowed from, you know, the ancient Sanskrit, which, uh, you know, meant divinity when divinity comes into a body and the guys at Lucasfilm, which is, you know, the company behind Star Wars were creating one of the first online role-playing games back in the 1980s called Habitat. And they were looking for a terminology for this little character on the screen that was only like, you know, like four, four bits or whatever, eight bits. It was a really simple character. And they said, well, it feels like you're taking some, something that's big your, your consciousness and you're stuffing it down into these little phone lines and you're going and, and back then it was, you know, uh, modems over Commodore 64s and you were sending it into this character. They said, well, why don't we call it an avatar? Cause that's kind of what divinity does, you know, in the, in the, in the Hindu terminology. And so, uh, so I say always assume everybody else is also an avatar, meaning they also have a player behind their avatar. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the nature of the game isn't, you know, Grand Theft Auto, where you're trying to steal as many cars, uh, you know, and, and what people and, and you know, I'm not sure what, what you know, what, what you guys say on this front, but I spent a lot of time with folks who've had near-death experiences and, and they, uh, you know, talk about the life review, where you have to review every single act that was done uh, in your lifetime. And, it, you know, one of the guys, Daniel Brinkley, was a friend of mine who wrote Saved by the Light back in the 1990s. You know, he talks about it as a holographic panoramic life review. And it's, you're not just revisiting it. It's like you're playing it in this 3D projector space. But then you're also at the other person's location and you're feeling what the other people felt during the lifetime. And then you actually see things that even you didn't see, which is the ripple effects of your actions. And, you know, he used to, he was in the military and he actually used, he shot people. And he, he was struck by lightning and was declared dead for how many ever minutes, at, you know, kind of a full near-death experience. And he came back and he said he had to experience what it was like to be the people he shot and to see what effect it had on, on, on their lives. Uh, and, you know, for me as a computer scientist, I say, okay, well, how would that work? The only way to do that would be as if everything was being recorded as is, and then you could replay it 
in a projection. And, and we've done that with video games where you take like a 2D video game like League of Legends uh, or World of Warcraft, and then we replay the game, you put on a virtual reality headset and we put you inside the game at any coordinate inside. So you can literally see what it was like to shoot yourself, uh, you know, within that. And so I, I say, well, as we're looking for, you know, what is the purpose of the game? You know, we might talk to people who have peaked outside uh, for whatever reason, right? Whether it's various religious traditions, scriptures, or near-death experiences or others. And, and they tell us that, you know, the game, the purpose of the game is not Grand Theft Auto, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I wonder, if, could, could that um, technology help people with um with trauma do you think like as a therapy could yeah. there be could it be and has it been because it, it seems to me to be able to do that in in almost like a safe zone to see what's going on to slow it down to give you a chance to relive those all those um emotional triggers that come up as long as you was was in a in a safe zone with somebody that's going to help yeah. you through it, a bit like a, a like we have a, a a master that would take us through psychic experiences, or otherwise, don't don't be doing that, Deborah. Not on your own, idiot. You know, you need you need help. But I could see, I could really see benefits in that. Is there people? Are there programs that help like that that you know of? Well, I, I know there are a number that have been trying to create these types of programs using virtual reality that would let you kind of revisit your fears. Uh, so for example, there was a company that had done studies around people have fear of spiders or snakes, for example, and you could put on a virtual reality helmet and you could experience a snake or a spider, but you could do it in a safe environment or fear of heights, right? Which is a big one. So if you've ever, I mean, I, I always tell the ping pong story, but another story from that same time, this was 2016 when consumer VR was relatively new where I was up on, on, on a giant skyscraper, I put on the helmet and I didn't want to move to the right because I would fall off this giant skyscraper. So it, it is possible for, you know, virtual images to induce some of the same types of feelings. Uh, and there are companies that have started to do that. None have been entirely, you know, that successful as companies, but they have shown definite benefits in studies. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Can I come on to like a taboo subject now? And uh, so I'm going to, I almost feel you starting to, to cringe up here a, a little bit, but I want to take you back to Arthur C. Clarke and, and Childhood End. Now, I don't, I'm not familiar with that book. I just did a quick sort of look what was all that about. But what I did, and you know, hook into was something which was really interesting in our teaching. So I would like to try and explore, even just on that sort of, base level if you could tell the the storyline and then i'll jump in best with what what our teachings say and then perhaps we can sort of dive in and just extrapolate out what where, where it might be that arthur's arthur c was not as crazy as some people think he might have been right yeah well you know I've, you I've been a, a fan of his you know of his work for a long time and uh, there's actually a TV show as well uh, of childhood then uh, that was on the Sci-Fi Channel for people that are that are kind of interested. But you know the the basic thing is that uh, within childhood then there's there's a peaceful alien invasion, if you will. So there's a group of aliens that arrives on Earth and they're called the Overlords. Uh, and what happens is that they stay on their ships 
and they don't come down to the earth and they don't allow humans to see who they are, but they start giving instructions on technology, on social justice, on a bunch of different areas. And, you know, they lead to kind of a utopian age you know, within the science fiction novel uh, on earth, but without ever have, actually having seen them. And then eventually uh, they come down uh, after like a generation or two. Uh, and it, the, you find out the reason why uh, that they haven't come down is because, you know, they look kind of like our traditional, at least within the Judeo-Christian traditions, there's, there's kind of a traditional depiction of, of the devil or demons with horns and, and tails. And that's how they actually look. And they knew if they came down right away, they, you know, the, the mythology that has spread within, within humans would be such that they would have, uh, uh, reacted in a, in a bad way. But because they had been around for so long, you know, within in their spaceships, by the time they did come down, it was uh, it was a more harmonious thing, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I read the book, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was you know what one of what one of the the main storylines of Childhood's End. And did and was was there a case where then the the um, humans didn't then reproduce in the normal yeah, way? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I think at the end, then once they reach a certain point, uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember the specific scene here, um, but at the at the very end, um, it, people evolve, and they are able to, uh, uh, you know, they basically get into a psychic group consciousness in a way. And they and they no longer like reproduced in the same way. No longer became a society of individuals, uh, and so they had like clairvoyance and telekinetic powers, but they also had like a group consciousness. Uh, and then eventually they went off. Uh, you know, something happens in with the moon, and eventually they left Earth. The children that were left, you know. Um, so so that's I mean it's been a while since I've read it, but but there was an element of that at the very end of, of what happened, which showed that. Humanity was evolving from these physical kind of individual beings that are separate from each other into this kind of giant, more broad collective That's consciousness. Hell of a story, yeah. And that was, <laughs> and that last bit was the bit that I had kicked. As I told you, I did a bit of like a, I think they call it a screen scrape or something, but just a quick bit. And 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 I, what I took from that is that childhood end means that there was no longer. To, no longer the need to um, become a baby, you know, reincarnate baby through childhood to adult. Um, because when we, we're told in our teachings, when we ascend, so when we've learned all the lessons we need to in this classroom and we, and we die, which we know we don't actually die, but we, so we, we, we move on. So we've learned all the lessons. We're in ascension. We can either choose then to come back down and help the rest of the poor souls carry on um, as part of a, of a hierarchy of Earth, or you go to a different planet to start their life cycle. If you go to a different planet, let's say Mars, it doesn't mean, really, you know, but let's just say Mars, you go to Mars, you don't start off as a baby. You, can't, you hmm. come in with your full consciousness. You're given a mum and a dad, for want of a better word, but they're like guardians. Hmm. And so you're in an adult 
um, form, whatever that would be, Martian form, we're told is like humanoid. So let's just say, so you're in your, but you don't, you haven't forgotten any of the lessons that you've learned. You almost like stashed right. them, right? You're thanked to them. They're all yours. You can't lose them anymore. Um, and, and so there are no babies. There are no children because you're then born through the logos, the flame of that planet. And that was the bit that I was case taken from. I thought, I wonder whether, you know, Arthur has seen the fact that this reincarnation cycle that we're all in, where when we the baby comes in, the baby can't remember its last lives mostly, because yes. the consciousness is all like crammed and wrapped up and in knots until we can, you know, and that and that seemed to me like, whoa, if that's what he saw, if that's what he he, he managed to bring through, because I believe that you bring all this information through, then that's a lot more than your 30 years you gave me to on, on like the sci-fi sci into the future, or have I got the dates wrong on that? I, it's got to be, what, 50 years? 50 years plus on that story? So... Oh yeah, 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 that story though. That one, that one went went a long way <laughs> into the future. Like by the end, I think it's quite quite a bit in the future. So, well, you know, obviously so Clark. Yeah, so I was just going to say, you know, he, he spent you yeah. know much of much of the later part of his life in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, which is a Buddhist country, and um, I was there a few years ago, and uh, you know, we were able to visit his office, which is still preserved there. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so he's got all of his. You know, all of his books are there where he worked, but uh, you know, I don't know that he himself was either a believer in reincarnation or not. I, I get the sense that he was relatively skeptical, but he was certainly within this environment, this Buddhist environment where good material, you know, that's a pretty, yeah, it's a part of the culture. This idea that you come back, you know, and you have your karma, uh, and so you know, I built a little bit on that in my uh, in, in in my simulation theory books where I talk about karma is really a database of lessons that you're that you have to learn in the future and you keep adding to this database if you think of it like your personal tutorial plan right <laughs> using the metaphor of the classroom that, that you're using here uh and that when you come back you still have this long list of lessons that you have to learn but at least within you know many of the traditions of the east and even within the greek traditions you cross the river of forgetfulness right you cross lethe or in the chinese traditions you drink the the brew the tea of forgetfulness uh, so you forget about all that, uh, but then more advanced souls are able to remember it, you know, while they're here. And there are many stories within, you know, within the yoga traditions of people who can basically come back in, materialize a human body, you know, an adult body, if you will, and just come right back in, even though they've died. Uh, you know, my, my latest book is called Wisdom of a Yogi, and it's about Yogananda. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, yeah, his course, book. That's how we found you, yeah. 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 And so, you know, which is a kind of a, a spiritual classic in the West, Yogananda came over about 100 years ago, and he was the first Indian guru to really make an impact. He lived, you know, in America, lived in, in uh, Los Angeles and San Diego. And, you know, he, he, his stories of his tradition include a mysterious guy named Babaji, which just means, you know, revered father, if you do a literal translation of it. Uh, so, but of a guy in the Himalayas who's many hundreds of years old and who keeps reappearing in the same body of like I'm a 25 year old, uh, you know, of a 25 year old man. And so he's either to either preserve that body or in some of those traditions, he's able to recreate that body and come right back in whenever he needs to, 
And there are stories of him going back, you know, hundreds, even thousands of years in some cases. And so, you know, within the tr- within the yoga traditions, there's there's a lot of those stories. Uh, again, with, with, if you use the metaphor of the video game, it becomes relatively easy to understand because when you create an avatar, you create a character, normally you would just create an adult character and then you would start playing that character, right? And so, you know, my definition of ensoulment in that case, um, I was just in the UK, actually, I was in Birmingham this summer and I gave a talk at a uh, Islamic conference about Islamic jurisprudence, which is kind of a strange place for me to be talking. Um, but I, you know, there was debates about ensoulment, when does the soul enter the body? And there's an Ayatollah from Iran there, but there were all kinds of like scientists, you know, scholars from Cairo University, et cetera. And I said, well, here's my definition of ensoulment. It's when you put on the virtual reality headset and you forget what, you know, what was going on before. Uh, but then, uh, you know, I also like to talk about the Tibetan dream yoga traditions where you learn to wake up inside a dream. So it's a lucid dream. And once you wake up inside the dream, then you can remember there was a part of you that's asleep in the bed. And there's a whole other life before that, that you normally don't remember because of that veil. And then they try to use that idea to say, if you can do that here, you, you know, while you're awake, you can basically remember what was going on before. Uh, and, and so within the Tibetan traditions, there's also this idea of uh, these, these kind of dream yoga is one of the seven, six yogas of Naropa, who was a Kashmiri pundit who, uh, who taught one of the, the key Tibetan lamas who walked over the, the mountains, you know, back then the Himalayas. And there's a secret seventh yoga called forceful projection. And the idea was they would, they would leave their body through third eye and they could go into another biological entity that was there. Uh, and so, you know, it, at least it touches on this idea that you can enter an adult body. And there's a famous story of Marpa, who was the translator who went across the mountains, his son, uh, was basically within a horse and he fell off the horse. And as he was falling, he knew the secret yoga and he projected his, his consciousness out of his physical body into a pigeon that was flying because his body was about to break its neck. The pigeon went to India where he found a recently deceased you know, body of a young man that was in relatively good condition. He entered that and he basically entered it as an adult and started teaching as the pigeon saint, they called him. And then years later, when someone asked Milarepa, who's Tibet's most famous yogi, how do you do this? He said, go to India and find this guy, the pigeon saint. He's the expert because he did it. And he's now in this other adult body. And so there is this interesting, you know, yogic practice. I mean, I can't say I know the details, but I've read enough about it to know that there are enough people in those traditions who believe in those practices and some who say they've seen that actually happen. So. Well, and what this, you're doing, Rich. <laughs> Sorry, Jack, go. Well, just that lives up to the billing, though. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't get, yeah. you don't get that in, uh, you know, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I don't talk about that too much with my uh, colleagues at places like MIT or SU <laughs> or, uh... but if it happens in, if it's been told in that tradition and it's told in that, like walking on the water or ascending, you know, if it, if it reappears in different teachings, you know, that for me is a, is a big tick in the, in the possibility box. So. Yeah, that's part of, you know, part of my research for Wisdom of a Yogi was, you know, that book uh, has all kinds of stories of, you know, levitating saints, saints who are bilocating is in one location and somebody sees them in the other location. And so, you know, I, I interviewed a professor of religion named Diana Pasolka from University of North Carolina. She wrote a book called American Cosmic uh, called UFOs, Technology.
religion, but she's really a scholar of Catholicism. And she says that what happens in, in academia, like she believed these stories when she was younger. She read Autobiography of Yogi and she was a Catholic. And there's plenty of Catholic stories and saints like St. Teresa of Avilia, who, you know, was floated many times up and people were trying to hold her down, uh, or St. Joseph, Joseph of Cupertino. And she went to the Vatican and she was given access to their canonization records of Joseph of Cupertino. And she said she saw, you know, literally there were thousands of people that saw this guy float in the square, you know, outside in Cupertino. And that's when she became, realized, okay, well, you know, academia tells us, kind of trains, indoctrinates us to treat these just as funny stories, you know, looking at it from a sociological perspective, that it doesn't have a reality, but perhaps these things are really happening. And so it kind of opened her mind that maybe reality is not what we think it is. And so the, well, you know, that's, the, it, that's what happened to me yeah. when I came into the Ethereum Society. I was very, you know, skeptical in that. But, you know, if you just say that uh, if everything is true, you know, all these allegories, every, if you just open, you, re you relax and say, okay, well, if they've told me this, and that turned out to be true. And the people who told me this told me also that, to, you know, if you extrapolate it and it's all true, then it, it opens your mind and frees you a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah. But you still can find the commonality. Because there, what, there are that? still, there's still, you need to be discerning because there are yes. worms in the can. And for me, and for me, who searched for truth for many, many years, well, since the chipmunks, really. Um, so, <laughs> I, I've been, I, I, you know, I've been on this for a long time. Uh, and when I found the teachings, I mean, I'd spent thousands of pounds that I didn't have to spend, and I've been down cul-de-sacs that were long and hard and dark, and you know, come back again with shame on my face, and my friends going, "Yeah, I told you that was a load of rubbish." You know, and all, so I've, I've gone through all of that, um, all of that, just to find the truth. The truth has to be here somewhere. But for me, and I can only speak for me, when I found the teachings, I was very cautious. Like I didn't want to sign the sign any documents. But the more I studied, and the more I learned for myself. And actually, they said that, and it's true because I've proven it for myself. And they've said that, and this happened. Then I bring that, and and it, and it builds that um, confidence to to the stage where I could sign the paper and become a a member, and then do 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 the do the training and become uh, a temple um, initiate. But it, but you do have you can't take everything just because it sounds like a good story. Well, you have to have experience, you know. It's all taught, you know, you saw all these other societies and you saw what was wrong. And then, you know, there's a good scene in the life of Brian. You remember the Monty Python movie? I think John Cleese yeah. says, you know, you are the Messiah. I say you are. And I should know. I followed a few. You know, he's been he's been following all these different gurus <laughs> and he's been laughed at. And, you know, but but he's got the ability through all that training to discern. And, you know, he's his higher self. He knew, like, I think Dr. King, he met some people who 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 were looking for a messiah yeah, i think uh, all that time and they knew one day they would meet the messiah so of course you follow you follow quite a few wrong messiahs but you you learn what quality what what like yeah you know whether it smells right after a while yeah. <laughs> you can yeah you get your nose gets tuned in so for me the teachings are good as long as i stick with what the masters have said what Dr. Kinger says, not what my colleague 
fellow, a, a theory of society friend uh, from another. Yeah. A, you get a lot of weirdos in uh, friend. So you don't want to, you know, you listen to that politely, but then go back to the transmissions. And that for me is my truth. So Lord Babaji for me, because I've been told by the the people that I believe, is the Lord of the Earth. He's in charge of the hierarchy of Earth. And he's been here for, you tell me, Jack, 300,000 years. I'm just going to be here for another 300,000 years. Or if I got that wrong, is it millions? I, I'm not very good with noughts. There might be a few more noughts on that, but there's definitely some threes in the number. But a long, long time, and he's the boss. And he knows a lot. Very clever man. In Shambhala. Yeah. No, no, that's Lord Buddha. He's in Shambhala. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lord Buddha's in charge of Shambhala now, according to the teachings. I love all this. And I and I really love the fact that you that with all your with all your training and all your um all, all, all those little letters that you'll have after your name, Riz, you're talking to me. Um and we're able to share space because you're inspiring. And I'm I'm loving the fact that you're giving people that opportunity to explore their creativity within this safe zone. But don't go letting people kill each other. No, no, no. That's not not good. That's not good. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's where I think, you know, part of the reason why I got into the work that I do, you know, obviously there's the background in the video game industry and all of that, but it's also because I spent so much time with people from different traditions. You know, I grew up in the Islamic traditions. I've spent a lot of time with people in the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions. And obviously I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in the U.S. So I've spent a lot of time with people from the Christian traditions as well, but, but you know, stepping away from that, I've spent a lot of time with scientists and, and academia and technologists in Silicon Valley, as well as people within the UFO community, uh, as well as people who do shamanic dream work. And I find that, you know, the one way that I can, you know, be in all these spaces together is to use the right metaphors, right? And because metaphors give us a way to do that. Um, I mean, even within academia, you know, that they aren't necessarily willing to entertain the idea even that, you know, there are aliens, you know, or supernatural beings about, you know, that, you know, might be in charge of the earth or that might live in a place called Shambhala and you can't see it, right? But they are willing, once you start talking to them about the idea that, well, what if this is all a rendered simulation? Uh, and then they start to say, oh, well, you know, anybody who's like not in it might look to us like a supernatural being. And so then you start to open up you know, this idea from a pure materialistic atheist atheism to, oh, there's actually other possibilities here. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean that they might not actually be quote unreal. Um and, and so so that that's part of the reason why I do the work that I do. It's it's, it's because, yeah. you know. Very bridge yeah. building. You're bridge, bridge building, building. Gate, gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the masters yeah. do say that they say that it is a simulation, but it's it is one step removed. So, you know, you're mm. shooting a virtual player. You're not. If I die, I'm not dead. In this, right? In this, you know, I my 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 I have seven bodies. You know, I my other bodies will go into the astral plane. I and then I you know, I have a, an etheric body and I have a you know a soul and but I really am spirit. So, yeah, it is a game. It is this. None of this is real. So, but it is. A reflection it is 
it is real so we should be nice to the other people and not shoot them even in a on the physical plane. <laughs> right and then that's where you know i like to look for the commonalities to say okay maybe these guys got it wrong but if they're saying some of the same things that these guys are saying perhaps that little bit is right and you know i talked about the life review being you know in a sense showing you what the purpose of life is because it's like you're going to review you know like like the coach after the end of a football game goes back and you watch the video and you review it and that kind of tells you what were the rules of the game but then you know within the islamic tradition they also have this idea of the scroll of deeds uh, and the scroll of deeds they have these two angels they even have names for them the kiram and kitabin one writes down all your good deeds one writes down all your bad deeds and it's kind of the the source of these metaphors that we use like in kids movies like Disney movies where you have the good angel on your left shoulder and the bad angel, you know, or, or, or the devil telling you to do all these bad things, you know, which comes from a, an angel and a jinn in the Islamic traditions. But the point is that these are really just metaphors, right? They don't mean there's an angel with a feather pen trying to write down, oh, and you went to the store today and did not treat the clerk nice, right? What are they going to write in Arabic? They're going to write in Chinese. What, what it really means. So they're both trying to tell us the same thing, which is that somehow all of this is being recorded. Uh, and that we will have to review it. And, and that's what, it, you know, uh, but it was written, uh, you know, 1600 years ago or 1400 years ago. And so you had to like deal with la language that people could understand at the time, just like today's language. And so when Yogananda came over 100 years ago, you know, he tells the story about World War One. You talked about the suffering, the killing. And he, you know, back then they saw newsreels. So they saw black and white you know, uh, images at the theater. And he, and he was really sad to see the suffering. I mean, World War I wasn't called World War I. It was called the Great War because there was so much mechanized killing. It was the first first time they were really using, you know, machine guns and artillery. And and then he saw a vision where he actually saw, like, in 3D, you know, the killing and the suffering. And he said, Lord, why do you allow this? And the answer that he got back was uh, using a metaphor of the time. You know, the latest technology metaphor. And, and the answer was, well, it's like a movie projector, right? And you're all playing characters. And so even though the characters are suffering, when, you know, the actors don't die. And so you don't die. And so that was the metaphor he used to use with his students was look away from, you know, look away from the, the movie screen. And if you've ever done that when you're in a movie theater, you look around and you can see the flickering of the, the lights, but you can also see everybody so engrossed that they're like, forgetting that there's anything else. Uh, and, and I believe if you were alive today, he would use an updated metaphor, right, to describe it, which is, it's like a movie, it's like a play, which is what Shakespeare said, that all the world's a stage. Uh, in, in the Vedas, there's the Leela, which is the game. Uh, and then Buddhist doctrine, there's the dream. But, you know, it's interactive. You can change the script. You have a script. You're supposed to do certain things, but you can change the script. And we're in the audience, but we're also playing roles. What does that sound like? It sounds like a massively multiplayer role-playing game using today's today's terminology <laughs> which is also just a matter uh yeah and so you wrote about this in your book the simulation hypothesis which people can get yeah so that was the the main book that talks about all these subjects and then wisdom of a yogi is like the more recent book that is more specifically about yogananda and and yogic teachings and bringing them back but the simulation hypothesis has you know, a bunch of this stuff, it, technology, the physics, and the religious traditions and the mystical traditions, um, and, and why uh, they're all telling us something similar, in my opinion. You have a pyramid on your Twitter page and a pyramid behind you. Are you uh, also? Are you, so, you know, 
Say, uh, well, the, the, so not specifically, but this is my uh, my favorite artist uh, named Ellen McDonough, and, and she tends to make these beautiful images of, of pyramids. And, uh, you know, you could say she's obsessed with pyramids, <laughs> you know, both on Earth as well as in other other landscapes. So I like it just because of the science fiction quality <laughs> of, the, of the painting. <laughs> well, we could keep chatting all day, but I think we run out of time and uh, it's been super interesting. And so where people can learn more about you, follow you. Yeah, so they can go to my website, which is uh, zenentrepreneur.com, which is based on the title of my first book, which was called Zen Entrepreneurship. And they can follow me on Twitter or X uh, at Riz Stanford, just like the university, uh, or on Instagram at, at Riz Cambridge, uh, like the university in the UK or the, the, the town in Massachusetts where I happened to be living at the time when I created that account. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate the work you're doing, taking the ancient knowledge and you know, translating it for the modern audience. It's, it's wonderful work. Good work. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been really fun talking with you guys. Thank you. And if people want to learn more about the Ethereum Society, they can go to ethereist.org. Thank you.